And I'll invite us together to turn in God's Word, a copy of the Scriptures to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, which we'll be looking at, reading and then looking at in today's message. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, can be found on page, I think, 1005 in the Bibles underneath the seats. If you want to pick up one of those, it's also printed there in your bulletins, you can follow along. Last week in our series of 1 Corinthians, which we have been in for quite a while, we looked at the hard truth that sinners, the unrighteous, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that truth is hard because, in fact, all of us are by nature sinners and unrighteous before God. But that hard truth we saw at the, there in 1 Corinthians 6 is followed by the fact that uh, the hope-filled transformation promised in the gospel, that through Jesus Christ and by the power of God's Spirit, the Christian is, is washed and sanctified and justified by the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of His Spirit. And there's inheritance in the blessing and the benefits of God's kingdom through that transformation, both here on earth as well as in heaven. And that that change, that radical change, is possible because of the appearing of Jesus Christ in time and space history as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And so we're going to pause our our study in Corinthians over these next few Advent Sundays, and we're going to consider how the coming of Jesus, the appearing of of Christ on earth accomplishes that, that transformation, that new life, achieves for us that kingdom life and assures us of our inheritance with him in his glory. And today we're going to consider what that means, uh, that Christ appeared excuse me, <clears throat> to wash us or to cleanse us from sin by looking at Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful Advent book as it's written to believers of Jewish background to explain how the, how the coming of Jesus Christ, how the incarnation of Jesus in flesh and blood and his perfect life and sacrificial death accomplishes all that God had pictured, all that God had promised in the old covenant before his coming. All that the law and the priesthood and the ceremony rituals and the sacrifices of the temple Though they had been divinely ordained and established by by God, all of that could just foreshadow but not accomplish by itself redemption with God. And the book of Hebrews is written to show how everything under what it terms the Old Covenant, what we would call the Old Testament in the Scriptures, God's dealing with His people before Christ came, was purposed by God To reiterate and to reinforce the hard truth of man's sin and his separation from God. And to point to the need for and to the promise of one who would bring about that true hope-filled transformation of the heart. The eternal redemption of sinners into the inheritance of God's kingdom. And the central message of of really chapter 7 to 10 in Hebrews are that Jesus is the the better high priest, the better sacrifice of the new and better covenant. He's fulfilling in himself all that the, the earthly temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices pointed to. 
And here in chapter 9, that contrast is made to help us see how it is only through Jesus that sins are fully and finally washed away, that our consciences are, are perfectly purified and cleansed such that we might draw near to God. We might receive the promised blessings and the eternal inheritance of his kingdom. And so follow along with me as I read and we hear from the word of God given to us in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a, a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Father, would you take these words, and now my words, and Father, would you impart them to us by your Holy Spirit, make them living and active that we might be shaped and conformed more and more into the image of your Son, that we might be cleansed of all unrighteousness, that we might draw near into your presence with full hope and assurance which you have given to us through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. 
As ancient and as foreign as much of this discussion of of tents and priests and, and tabernacles and sacrifices may seem to us today, there's one thing that we can all relate to, and that is what we would call a guilty conscience. There is not a human being alive that doesn't know what it means to feel a sense of guilt. From the smallest child who, who intuitively tries to cover up the evidence of something they've, they've broken when they were told not to touch it rather than going and showing it proudly to their parents. To the most responsible of adults who finds themselves regretful or ashamed at some shortcoming or failure. We are all too familiar with the experience of guilt. And the instrument that that God has given us to register and to measure this sense of guilt is our conscience. It is that faculty, it's common to all of humanity, by which we have an innate sense of what is right and wrong, and particularly as it relates to to the moral demands of a holy God that have been written on our hearts as those created in his image. And the whole issue of the conscience and the experience of, of guilt is a, is a complex thing. There are all kinds of attempts, psychologically, scientifically, theologically, to try and, and understand it and explain it and find a solution for it. And people of all kinds go to great lengths to try and relieve this, this burden of guilt Sometimes by denying or externalizing it. Sometimes by projecting it onto something or someone else. And our conscience is not infallible and we can often fool ourselves. But despite all we might do to to clear or to clean up our conscience, deep down there's this inner sense of guilt that remains. And God's word is given to us and, and God comes to speak to that guilty conscience. Comes not to deny it, not to, to suppress it, but to arouse our conscience, so to speak, to uncover and expose our, our guilt so that we might seek and pursue a remedy for it. That we might understand the, the need we have that's caused by this sense of guilt and alienation from God. And one of the main points of the book of Hebrews, and certainly our passage here, is to show that the the tabernacle and the whole system of priests and sacrifices, which had been divinely established by God in the Old Covenant and had a purpose for for enabling uh, people to come into the presence of God and to worship, all of that was inadequate to do so in the same way that the many solutions we seek to, to cleanse and, and, and salve our conscience are inadequate today. They may deal with the outward symptoms associated with our guilt, but they cannot deal with the real root issue of sin and our guilt before God. Look at verse 9 where he says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They deal only with the outward ceremonial things prescribed in the law like food and drink and washings. And over in in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 2, we're told that if sacrifices were given by God that could have perfected those offering them, then those sacrifices would have ceased for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But indeed, that, that guilty conscience still remained 
And those repeated sacrifices were a constant reminder of that need and of that guilt before God. And that there's something better needed to deal with it. And that's the point of this discussion here in chapter 9 and the contrast between the old and the new. To say that the old system and all its prescribed detail and glory and significance, what that could not do, Jesus Christ appears as the initiator and high priest of a new covenant. And he has fully and finally accomplished and cleansed us from that guilt. In verses 1 to 5, the writer speaks of this setup of the tabernacle and its regulations. And and we're not going to go into great deal about that because the writer himself says we're not going to go into a great deal about that. But certainly his his readers would have been quite familiar with that whole system of, uh, of sacrifice and set up in the temple. But he makes the point here that there was this, this first or outer section called the holy place. And then a second or inner room called the most holy place. The holy of holies as we, as we are familiar with it. Which was separated by that, that first section in the tabernacle with this, this huge thick curtain. And the tabernacle and all its furnishes and regulations were laid down in his law and divinely ordained by God. And each one held held a particular significance with regard to the holiness of God and how he was to be worshipped. But the point the writer wants us to get here is that these things were, were not bad. They were not wrong. They were just inadequate. <laughs> they were just a precursor to something more that was needed. They were God's purposeful and prescribed means of worshiping and drawing near to him. And each had their significance. But the main purpose was to highlight the holiness of God. And to highlight the separation such holiness necessitated between him and a people stained by the guilt of sin. Something was still missing. Something more was needed. And that that separation is emphasized even more by the description in verses 6 through 10 of the priestly ministry carried on in the tabernacle. Only the priests were allowed into the holy place, that outer section where they, where they daily carried out their duties and their routines of trimming candles and, and keeping the incense burning and bringing the grain offerings and, and making the sacrifices of the people before the Lord. But into that intersection, that holy of holies, that place where the Ark of the Covenant rested that symbolized the very presence of God among his people, Even the ministry of the priests was limited. And only one person, the high priest, could enter. And then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then it was a very dangerous prospect for him. Sacrifice needed to be made not only for his own sin, but also for the sins of the people And so the one marked out for this task of representing the people before God prepared to enter in with much prayer and ceremonial washing and bringing an offering, we're told, of blood, both for himself and for the sins of the people. Why blood? Because God's holiness, his justice demands a payment for the guilt of sin and that payment is is one's life. So the bull and the goat sacrificed on behalf of and in place of the high priest and of the people stood as a reminder 
that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the priest would go in with that blood as an atonement for all the unintentional sins, all those that hadn't already been sacrificed for, that weren't, weren't covered before by all the other offerings and sacrifices. And the point of all this, the writer tells us in verses 8 and 9, is that the Holy Spirit was indicating that the way into the holy places, the way into God's presence, the way back to true unhindered fellowship with God has not yet been opened up. The main message of the old covenant was God has provided a way and promised a way to draw near to him, but access is still restricted. Access is still restricted. It signified the way to God through only one person who could enter on the people's behalf. And only through the the shedding of blood to cleanse the guilt of sin. But it highlighted the fact that this way was still restricted. It needed to happen over and over and over again. There was only one backstage pass given out to one particular person and that, time, that only once a year. And so the key to coming to God was through this one individual offering up a sacrifice of blood. But a barrier still remained. And you can imagine years and years, centuries and centuries, as the people looked to the fulfillment of God's promise. And as the sacrifices were offered over and over and over again, that reminder, there was a, a, a great longing Lord, when? But that barrier still remained, and it was, might have been symboled by a lar- symbolized by a large curtain, but in reality, it was the guilt for sin of which the conscience testifies had not yet been fully dealt with. The tabernacle and all the sights and sounds and the smells of the sacrificial system were symbolic, he says, for the present age, that age before Christ appeared. It was like a big sign that constantly flashed, restricted access. But the gifts and the animal sacrifices offered in an earthly temple by the earthly priest were simply a matter of temporary relief. Simply an external cleansing, meant to suffice temporarily until, he says in verse 10, the time of reformation. Until the time of a a a new thing, a new order established. They could do nothing to remove the sense of shame and guilt that causes us to fear the presence of God and desire to hide and cover up our sin. And you know, we continue to wrestle with a guilty conscience. It's why God sometimes seems so far removed and so inaccessible. So many people, perhaps including some of you here this morning are still living very much like people under the old covenant with restricted access. We want to draw near to God, but our guilty conscience stands as a barrier. And so we look for ways to clean it up. We clean up our act by trying harder to please God. We offer up our good works. We rely on the good opinions of what others think or say. Or maybe we just try to deny or cover over that guilt by pursuing the comfort and the consolation of the world in its ways. But whatever we might do to try and rid ourselves of that, that 
that sense of, of guilt before God. It's like trying to paint over a moldy stain. It might look good for a little while, but soon the stain shows through again. We find ourselves like Lady Macbeth, constantly trying to wash away and cleanse ourselves of the damn spot of sin, but only to find out the stain and the smell of guilt continues to come through. What are we to do? What were the people of God to do? How can we deal with the constant plague of conscience that reminds us over and over again, like the constant and continuous sacrifices offered by the priests, that our sin is a barrier to God and it's going to take more than any sacrifice we can offer ourselves, more than any hard work or good effort at reform that we can undertake, more than any other person or program that we can employ can overcome. It's going to take God himself, as he has promised, to remove that barrier and restore access. And that is what he does. That is the blessed news of the gospel that we see in verses 11 through 14. Here again, we have another of the great transformative statements of the gospel. But when Christ appeared... The advent of Jesus Christ brought not only a a new age, but a whole new order of things. The time of true reformation, you'll be happy to hear, did not just happen with the appearing of Martin Luther and John Calvin. (laughs) But when Jesus Christ himself appeared, he came to bring to fulfillment, to accomplish once and for all, all those types, all those shadows in the old system all that they could only point to, that they could only prepare for. And Jesus appears as a high priest, he says, of all those good things promised in the new covenant, which have now come to reality in him. What are those good things? Access to God permanently. Guilt for sin atoned for fully. Our conscience purified and cleansed thoroughly so that we are free to fellowship and to follow and to serve the living God. And how does Jesus accomplish this? Well, he does what all those things were pointing to. He enters into the presence of God, not in an earthly tabernacle made with hands, not just in the symbolic earthly place where God dwelt among his people but he goes into the heavenly presence of God himself and he does so not through the sacrifice of of animals of bulls and goats but he goes by the shedding of his own blood meaning the the laying down of his own life Jesus the son of God comes down and he takes on flesh and blood He he enters into humanity so that he can fully identify with us. And he fulfills the demands and the requirements of the law which God had laid out over time. And he does it perfectly. And he does it for us. And being perfect in his obedience and being perfected in his suffering, he willingly offers up his own life, pouring out his own blood, not for his sins, For he had none, but to remove the guilt and to cleanse the stain of sin for people like you and me. By his own sacrifice on the cross, 
bearing the wrath of God, satisfying the justice of God for our sin in himself, Jesus, in his resurrection, enters into the presence and sits down at the right hand of God, his Father, signifying that it is finished. Sin has been paid for. There need not be any more sacrifice for sin. Indeed, there is no more sacrifice for sin other than his. And that our guilt has been cleansed and removed once and for all time. That's why we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the greater high priest without sin of his own, comes into the greater holy place the heavenly presence of God the Father, through a greater sacrifice of his own life, and he secures for us, as the writer says, an eternal redemption, a purified conscience, an eternal life with him in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus brings about not just a periodic cleansing from sin, but a permanent cleansing from the guilt of sin. And the writer argues from the lesser to the greater in verses 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. In other words, if there's that, there's that offering that God had established of a temporary outward remission and a, and a, and a temporary access and, and way to worship him. How much more with the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we're not only cleansed from something, we are cleansed for something to serve and to, and to live in fellowship with the living God. And so Christ has obtained an eternal redemption. It's not temporary access. It's not a partial cleansing. He removes the barrier of sin. He opens up a, a new and living way. He washes us clean of the guilt and stain of sin. Now, does that mean we no longer find ourselves guilty of sin? <laughs> or that we no longer feel that guilty conscience for sin? Not at all. We still do. But what it does mean as John says over in his letter, first letter, that when our hearts condemn us, when our conscience reminds us of our guilt, when that, that separation that sin brings from God is placed before us, says God is greater than our hearts. And when we confess our sins, Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It frees us to worship and to serve our Heavenly Father. And it changes us so that we can rest in His redemption and we can live in His righteousness and receive His cleansing power. Jesus appears and He empties Himself of His divine prerogative. He humbles Himself as a servant. He lays down His life to cleanse us from sin. And there's a beautiful picture of this in John chapter 13, where Jesus comes before his disciples, and, and it's the night before he would be betrayed, and, and he's there preparing the, the final uh, uh, Passover meal or having it prepared together. And you remember the situation. Jesus takes out the basin and the towel to come and to wash his disciples' feet, something that was reserved only for the lowest of servants, uh, 
and slaves to do. And Peter, not understanding yet what Jesus would do on the cross, he says, no way, Lord, you are not washing my feet. (laughs) And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to be washed, only his feet, but he is completely clean. And he says, you are clean. Christ's sacrifice has made us clean. And only when we receive his gracious cleaning do we have have true fellowship with him and with God the Father. Jesus said to Peter, "If, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And as we may... As we are clean by Christ, we may still be tainted by sin. And as we walk with him in this life, but that sin does not stick. He forgives. He restores. He renews us in his love and his grace. And so Peter says, okay, Lord, don't only wash my feet, but wash all the parts of me. And then Jesus goes on to say, he says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. In other words, we are redeemed in order to serve God and to serve one another in love and forgiveness and grace and righteousness. And that's the result of Christ's appearing. He appears to purify us from dead works to serve the living God, to draw near to him in worship, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, to encourage one another in love and good deeds. As we come to an end, just flip over with me to chapter 10 and look at verse 19 where all of this is reiterated again. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, as opposed to the old restricted way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, He's broken down the barrier. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the conclusion. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, we can draw near to God with boldness, with confidence, Because Christ has opened the way, because he has fully cleansed us from sin. He has given us his righteousness. And then it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Even as we live in a broken world, as we continue to wrestle with sin in our lives, hold fast to the hope that Christ has given us. Because he, the work he has done, is finished. And then it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Because of Jesus and only through Jesus in his shed blood from sin, we can draw near to God. Access has been granted. We now have unlimited backstage passes into the kingdom of heaven with all its perks, with all its benefits. And Jesus is our great high priest. He's still there interceding for us, still pleading his blood on our behalf. And therefore, we can have confidence and hold fast in the midst of a broken world to the promises of our redemption and our inheritance in the kingdom. 
And the cleansing of our conscience by Christ is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, not so that we can ignore the reality that we still struggle with sin and guilt, but that knowing we are accepted, we are welcomed, we are cleansed by our gracious God, we would now look to him and to the work of his spirit to encourage one another, to walk in holiness, to serve one another in love and in grace, and to reach out with that same grace into the world that others might come to know Christ. And it means that we live in light of that work that God has done. It goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire. In other words, don't trample underfoot or profane the sacrifice of Jesus by continuing to purposefully live in sin and unrighteousness. He says, if you do, there's not another sacrifice that can help you. Only in Christ can we be forgiven and set free. And so if you're here this morning, maybe struggling with a guilty conscience, Maybe you're aware deep down that there is a barrier between you and God. Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's a sin pattern that you are wrestling with. Maybe it's a, a broken relationship and you're reluctant to take steps to reach out and seek reconciliation. Maybe it's a constant burden and struggle that you feel in, in constantly trying to measure up and be pleasing to God and you just feel that you can't do it. Maybe it's the result of shame or suffering at the hands of someone else or through some painful circumstances. But it just seems that you can't bring it to God or that he's inaccessible or that he won't care or he won't understand. Well, friends, Jesus appeared to remove our guilt, to cleanse us, our consciences, to open a new and living way through his blood to come to God to receive his grace, to live again in the freedom of his forgiveness and power of the Spirit. And so don't ask, what do I need to do? Ask, what has Christ already done? Come to him and receive that washing, that cleansing, the purifying grace that he has for you. And for those of us who are believers, who have been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, remember your baptism. That is what we did here as a sign of what we're talking about. Improve it by appropriating what it signifies and seals to you in the gospel. Embrace the washing and the regeneration of God's spirit, the renewal unto eternal life. Strive and, and put your hope in the inheritance in his kingdom. And if you're here and have not trusted Christ or been baptized into his name, why not receive him right now? Why not by faith have your conscience purified through his work, your sins forgiven, and the way open for you to draw near and to serve the living God? He invites you to that. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not left it up to us to find our way to you that you have not required of us 
that we pay the sacrifice and the penalty for our sin. But you have provided a way, a new and living way. We thank you for the way in which in the old covenant you portrayed and pictured that for your people. And we thank you, Lord, that that you brought to fulfillment all of those promises in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself. Thank you for coming as a little baby, entering in to this life, into the brokenness of this world in order that you might redeem us. You might cleanse us from sin and you might welcome us eternally into the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to, through your word, prick our consciences, that you would remind us of our need and that we would continually come to you as the one who has met that need perfectly and live in the freedom and the forgiveness and the holiness for which you have redeemed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.